0: bibles tonight if you would please to the gospel of matthew chapter 10 and uh, again we're upside down tonight and getting the morning sermon in the evening but uh, i felt like that was the best thing for us to do so we're looking here in the gospel of matthew chapter 10 and once again uh, here are instructions that jesus is giving to his disciples just before he sends them out on the first missionary journey Matthew chapter 10 begins with the calling of these men to apostleship, the call to preach. And in the ninth chapter, uh, we ended that with Jesus going throughout all the towns and villages of Galilee. And there he was confronted with overwhelming numbers of sick people. And he was concerned about the sicknesses that people had. But more important than that was he was concerned about their souls... And verse number 36 in chapter 9 says that they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. And that word fainted is an allusion to be weighted down with such a burden that there's no possibility that you can carry it, that you fall beneath that load. And these uh, people were in such a spiritual condition that they were falling beneath the load of the heavy rites and rituals that were in the doctrines of the Pharisees. They were trying to live out all of those commands that the uh, Pharisees put upon them. And even if they could do it well or or do it uh, all of those commandments, there still wasn't any guarantee that they'd done them well enough. So there, there was no life in that system. And so they were sheep that were wandering, uh, like sheep trying to find a green pasture, struggling to find a stream where they could drink, and yet never able to get there. And so Jesus had compassion on them because of that terrible spiritual condition. Because what they were being taught was not what would help them. It wasn't the way that they could have eternal life. So because of that terrible spiritual condition, Jesus had compassion. But there were so many people, and there was so much territory to cover. There was so much to do that it was impossible for him to do it alone. And so he called on these 12 men He commissioned them with the gospel of the kingdom, and they were to go out and bring relief to this wandering fold and to point them to Jesus who could take all of their burdens away. The relief for their burdens could only be found by faith in Jesus Christ. Well, as we look here at chapter 10, these are instructions about how the disciples should conduct themselves in ministry. And as we've already seen in the previous lessons, that the Lord promised to provide for them. He told them where they were to go, and he told them what they were to preach. And he also said that as you go out, you have to trust God's providence. You have to trust me that I'm going to take care of you. And he wanted them to know also, before they went, all of the hostility that they would encounter. Now, it seems incredible that with the message that they were bringing, uh, they had the power to heal. They had the power to cast out devils. They could raise people from the dead. They had the very thing that people needed that could save their souls. It's just beyond remarkable that they would encounter any kind of hostility for preaching the gospel. But this is what this section is about, verses 16 through 23. Because not only would people reject the teachings of Christ... But they would do it with hostility, a determined hostility. So the apostles were literally risking their lives, taking their lives into their own hands, if we wanted to put it that way. But, of course, they were actually in the hands of God. But as man looks at it, they were taking their lives into their own hands by going out and preaching this gospel message that Christ gave them. So we come then to these verses 16 through 23. And we continue to listen in as Jesus warns the apostles of the opposition that they would face. So in Matthew chapter 10 verse 16, Jesus says to them, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up into the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues, and ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake." For a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak. For it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the spirit of your father which speaketh in you. And brother shall deliver up brother to death. And the father, the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents. And cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake... But he that endureth unto the end shall be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the city of Israel's, uh, cities of Israel until the Son of Man become. Now the first thing that we would notice about these scriptures is that this is not really what you would call a rousing pitch for the glamour of ministry. Now most of you have probably heard some of the recruiting commercials that are on television for for, uh, different branches of the armed services. And I haven't paid much attention to those in the last few years, but I know some of the old ones, I don't know if they still use these today, but they have certain slogans that they use and they're enticing things that try to get people to join up with the armed services. For instance, the army used to say, be all you can be. And the navy said, it's not just a job, it's an adventure. And the Marine Corps said, we're looking for a few good men. And the Air Force said, aim high. Of course, they told everybody else to shoot low, but they were to aim high. And, and the Coast Guard says, be part of the action. And in each of those commercials, you, you would notice as you watch those, there are these big, strong, healthy men that are enjoying themselves. They have smiles on their faces. It appears that everything's really going well. And what you simply cannot do, you can't resist the urge and, to go down there and just put your name on the dotted line with the recruiter and sign up for the armed services. But what those commercials never do is they never give the downsides of military life. I mean, the commercials don't begin with, join the army, and you're going to take a chance on getting shot at. You're going to be sent to Afghanistan. You're gonna, you might be wounded. You might even die there's a good chance that that could happen to you. And if you join the army, you're, you're, you're going to get to sleep on the ground and you'll get to go 50 days without a shower and you get to sleep with 50 snoring guys that smell like they've been up to their necks in manure all day. And then you'll get three square mi- meals a day that taste like horse meat. Now, of course, I'm, I'm not making light of, of anyone that's, that's served in our armed forces. I mean, serving is a privilege, and I don't want to make a joke out of that for people that have given life and limb to serve our country. But my point here is that you don't give the downsides to a recruit. The armed forces want you to believe this, that at least at first... When you sign up, you're going to get the career of your choice. You're going to get to where you want to go. There's not going to be a day of pain involved, at least not something very severe. You can handle that, and anything's, anything they throw at you is not really terribly troubling. Well, just the opposite is true. When Jesus began to describe his ministry, the ministry of the gospel to the disciples. This is not a recruiting pitch that you want to give to people. He says, behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. And if we were to put that in our modern day vernacular, Jesus is saying, when you go do this, this is an occupation where people are going to do their best to destroy you. They're going to try to tear you limb from limb. They'll hate you. They'll curse you. They'll kill you. And they'll do it all because of your association with me. So it's not a rousing recruiting call. But folks, what it is, what, and what it was, is as real and as honest as Jesus could be about it. He wasn't trying to hide anything. As I said, there are no secrets in, to Christians. No secrets in the Christian ministry. God's not trying to hide anything from us. And the remarkable thing about the passage that we read here is the scope of it. Because he's not just talking about what would happen to those 12 disciples and what would happen to them in the first century. Because you go down to verse number 23 and you see the scope of it because it goes all the way in to the tribulation period yet to come. 2,000 years of church history that we've now had is, co- had is covered in this section. And so when Jesus speaks to them, we can plant ourselves right down into the middle of the passage and we can read it just like he's speaking to us today. And if you're a child of God... And if you're doing what you've been told to do and you live a separated godly life, if you're wholly dedicated to Christ, you're going to find yourself as a sheep among wolves. And so you're going to be mocked for your faith. You'll be considered to be an enemy, not really someone who's giving hope to dying sinners that face the judgment of God. But as we noted last week, most Christians really don't feel like they're helpless sheep. They don't experience much opposition for being Christians. They don't encounter much hardships because if they do give the gospel to someone, it's usually a watered-down version. As I was speaking this morning, it's it's the God loves you version. And there's not a real, and I'm not saying God doesn't love people. That's not my point. But you have to go beyond that. There has to be a gospel that has repentance in it. There has to be a gospel that has sorrow for sin. And there's punishment that's coming from God. And certainly there has to be the consideration of the cost of surrendering everything to Jesus Christ, to his lordship. And so Jesus is telling the disciples, if you do it my way, and if you go out and preach what I tell you to do, and you preach the kingdom of God in the right way, then you can't help but engender strife. It's going to happen because the gospel is something that exposes the depravity of man. It exposes the atrociousness of our sin. And it also tells us that we are utterly helpless to do anything about the condition that we're in, that we need God. And so Jesus says that with a message like this and a world like this, then you're going to need some protection when you go out. You're going to need some protection when you preach this. And so we looked at that last week, the the protection for preachers of the gospel. You see, there's an element of helplessness that's in this. And you, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have to realize you are helpless without God. You can't do this on your own. A preacher can't do it on his own. And you out there, as you give the gospel to other people, and you try to live for Christ, you can't do it on your own. And so Jesus told them, he said, I send you forth. I'm the one who's sending you. And in that I... That Jesus says that he gives them is the element of protection. The wolves will be everywhere around. But he says, I am the shepherd of the sheep and your souls are safe with me. And we have to remember this. Hebrews says, the Lord is my helper. And I will not fear what man shall do unto me. And men will do. They'll do their best to do to us. But God is the one who keeps the soul. Now, remember, we're talking about spiritual things, eternal things. You might lose your life for Jesus Christ. It could happen. And later on, we'll see in the next section that Jesus says, that's what has to happen if you're going to serve him. Eventually, you're going to have to lose your life for him in one way or the other. And then Jesus spoke something about the disposition of those who witness with the gospel. So the disposition of witnesses, he says, "...be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves." And there he speaks of the shrewdness of those that speak the gospel. He's speaking here of the purity of life for witnesses. So he said, first of all, you have to be shrewd like a serpent. Now, you, you can't purposely put yourself into harm's way because you already know that the message you bring is, is one that people don't like. They're not going to like what you have to say. You have to be straight up with it. You have to tell them the truth of the gospel. But you need to speak that in wisdom. And you don't want to be purposely antagonistic with people. And since I'm just reviewing last week's message at this moment, I'm just going to have to point you back to last week. And if you want to understand that a little bit more fully, then you need to listen to last week's message. Jesus also said that you have to be harmless as doves. And that speaks of the character of your life. You represent Christ. And so if people are going to be angry with you, Let it be because the message is troubling, that the message itself is what bothers them and not you. You don't don't want the character of your life and your attitude to be the problem for people. But, But we see that many Christians really don't live a life that's one that's consistent with their Christianity. They're such poor examples in their Christianity and have such inconsistency that they have no credibility with the gospel. And so I dare say that there are many Christians, many church members that are like this. You're not a credible witness for Christ because you're so much like the world that the world doesn't see any difference in you and in in them. Now, I think what Jesus is trying to tell us here is that we need to get busy cleaning up our act. If you're going to be a witness for Christ, you've got to clean this whole thing up. Start to act like a Christian and talk like one. And dare I even say this, folks, you need to dress like one. You need to dress like you know Jesus Christ. I mean, have a little bit of concern for the presentation that you give to people. You represent Him. So dress like you know Him. You know, somebody says, clothes doesn't make the man. And I agree with that. Clothes don't make the man. Jesus Christ makes the man. But I'll tell you something. When Jesus Christ is in you, you begin to talk like Him. And you begin to act like Him. You begin to think the way that God thinks. And there's this aura of Christ about you if you really know him it's going to make a difference in your life now we want to go just a little bit further here and 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 I'm not really concerned that we're hurrying through the passage You, you well know that we're not really hurrying through anything and you say well well why do we do that I mean why do you start your messages out and you back up over things and you go over that again and you say that stuff again why do I do that well let me ask you something did you get it the last time did it change you did something happen to you that you've, got, you've, you've changed the issues that I've talked about? Now you know why I go back and back up over things. I see a lot of people just don't get it. They just don't get it. And so we have to say it again. Well, the Bible actually is full of repetition. Full of repetition. Jesus said the very same things that we're talking about here multiple times as he preached his messages. They've been over the same territory over and over again. And the Bible is full of repetition because God's people are sometimes so thick-headed that we don't get it the first time. We don't get it the second time and sometimes not the fourth or the fifth time. So we just keep preaching it until somebody makes the change that needs to be made. Now, let's go on here. Jesus continues... And he speaks thirdly about the persecution of the bearers of the gospel. He says in verse 17, But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues, and you shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. Jesus says, Beware of men. Now there you see the identity of the wolves. Now, maybe you don't like gender-specific words, so I'll generalize it for you. He says, beware of humans. Beware of humans. There's your biggest enemy, the humans, because they have this general hatred for Christ. It exists in every human heart. If you look down at verse number 22, Jesus says, And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. And we'll talk about that verse a little bit more later on. But there's hatred and hostility. There is persecution because of Jesus Christ. But you think about that for just a minute. Is it, it's kind of hard, isn't it, to find people that say that they hate Jesus Christ? How many people have you ever met that said, I hate Jesus Christ? Now, there are some who hate religion in general. Of course, they do mock Christianity and they make fun of the Jesus crowd. But if you walk up and down the streets of Ronard Park, Atati, Santa Rosa, wherever you want to go, you're not going to find too many people that say, you know something, I hate Jesus. I just hate him. And you know why? Because to them, saying that you hate Jesus is sort of like saying you hate George Washington. And it's like saying you hate Abraham Lincoln. Who hates George Washington or Abraham Lincoln? Sort of like saying you hate Gandhi. You know, Jesus was a pretty good fellow. I mean, you look at all the things that he did, the nice little principles that he taught, all the people that he helped. Well, no, of course, we don't hate Jesus. What's wrong with you? And you don't find too many people that just say, well, I hate God. And why would they hate God? I mean, you imagine a God that's your sugar daddy, and God gives you everything that you want, and he never makes any demands from you. And God's not really holy. and He doesn't care a whole lot about what you do and how you do it. And if your God is made in your image and you have a God of your own imagination, if God is the definition that you put on him, then what's not to like? Of course you like him. You love that kind of God because you made him what you want him to be. But what if you do what the apostles did and you say something like this, God is angry at the wicked every day. And what if you preach it like they did, when they said, you've got to repent of your sins. And if you don't do that, the vengeance of God is going to be on you. And not just his vengeance, but you'll spend eternity in the fires of an everlasting hell. What if you tell them that? What if you tell them, you know something, buddy? You're the next inhabitant of hell. And you tell them, if you don't trust Christ, this is what's going to happen to you. How much do they love that God? How much do they love that? Well, they don't love him at all. But that's what God truly is when you present God as he truly is there will be hostility and this is why Jesus said and this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil for everyone that doeth evil hateth the light neither cometh to the light lest his deeds should be reproved now there's your whole answer for the hostility there it is right there God is different from what they imagine him to be and when you give the truth of the real God the one that's revealed in the scriptures then they're not crazy about that God at all that's not the God that they want to know about in fact again the scripture says they hate him and this is why our country right now is on the fast track against Christianity Real Christianity is not going to last very long as a part of secular government because real Christianity is as much an enemy of people as the evil axis was in World War II. It's as much an enemy as communism was to, it, it, uh, to us. It's as much an enemy as the Taliban is to us today. But really, it's even worse enemy than all of those things because what we've done in this American culture and the way we are today, we've developed a tolerance for all those things in some way or another. Now we hear Islam's good, they're a peace-loving religion, and, and we don't worry so much about communism anymore. We can trade with them, and we can do all we need to do with them. And, and I'm not really getting political here, and that's not my purpose tonight. But we've developed a level, of to- a level of tolerance for all these things that were at least one time our enemies. But the thing that we have become grossly intolerant today, intolerant of today, is... Christianity that believes in the fundamentals of the faith of God's word. Those people, those people who act like that and trust the God, the real God of the Bible and believe the fundamentals of the faith, we are now the enemies. And I promise you, if you live like this, Jesus says, you're going to be persecuted for that and persecuted in different ways. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Now, What Jesus is telling the disciples is that you are going to experience persecution, sheep among wolves, and by extension what he says to them is true of every Christian today who tries to live the way God wants him to live. Well, how are we going to be persecuted? Well, Jesus actually gives us an outline here for who is going to persecute you. First of all, he says religion will persecute you. He says they will deliver you up to the councils and they will scourge you in their synagogues. Now, we know that this goes beyond this first missionary journey because this didn't happen in the first missionary journey. But it did happen to the apostles after Pentecost, and it has happened all throughout the history of the church. Jesus said, they will deliver you to the councils. Deliver you to the councils, up to the councils. Now, now probably there, he's not talking exclusively about that big Jewish council that we think of, the Jewish Sanhedrin. The main one that was the ruler over the Jewish religion. He's not necessarily talking about that right at this particular point. There are councils that were in all of the cities. All of the small towns and villages, they had these councils. The apostle Paul uh, encountered councils of religious people that hated the gospel you might remember especially the story that's in Acts chapter 19 and that's where the apostle Paul caused a riot in the city of Ephesus remember the story Paul was preaching the gospel there and in the city of Ephesus there was this huge magnificent temple that was built to the goddess Diana and there were silversmiths in that city And uh, by the way, that temple there was one of the wonders of the ancient world, a magnificent place. And there were silversmiths there that were making little bitty trinkets, little little trinkets of the goddess Diana and also of that temple. And they sold those and they made their living by that. And people worshipped all these little idols that were made. Well, the apostle Paul came and he started preaching the gospel and people got saved. And what's the natural thing that people do when they get saved? Well, these people would start giving up their idols. Now, that seems to be something that you don't see in the big Christianity today. Is there's a lot of idols that people worship, but these people began to give up their idols, and so the silversmiths began to lose their income. And so they couldn't sell their little trinkets any longer because Christians, uh, so many people were getting saved that people wouldn't buy them. So those silversmiths caused a riot. They got the people together, they got the council together, and they drove Paul out of that city. I mean, there was a riot there, and Paul said, it's time to get out of Dodge, and so Paul left. And that was common wherever he went. And then there were times when he was scourged, just like Jesus said. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says of the Jews five times... Received I 40 stripes, save one. He was stoned and left for dead. The Jews beat him, and the uh, Gentiles often treated him the same way. But then there are also those times when the apostles were brought before the Jewish Sanhedrin. One of the examples that we have is in Acts chapter 5. And the apostles were thrown in prison. The Jewish council had caught them out there preaching the gospel in the temple area. They were preaching Christ, and they put him in prison. But then there was an angel that came by night and got them out of the prison. And so you know what they did? They said, well, we're not risking this any longer. No, no, they didn't say that. They went right back out and they got in the same area and they started preaching the gospel of Christ again. And when the Jewish council found out that they were out there again, they went back and they hauled them back into prison and told them not to preach. And in the end of chapter 5, it says they beat them and then they let them go. And the apostles rejoiced, it says, because they were counted worthy to suffer shame, listen, in the name of Christ. And isn't that exactly what Jesus said? He said this will happen. Ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. So they were beaten in the name of Christ. And folks, that's proof that people really do hate Jesus when you preach the Jesus of the Bible. And then Jesus said they'll scourge you in the synagogues right in the place of public worship. They're going to bring you up in front of people, and they are going to beat you. Now, you know the story of the Apostle Paul? He did that before he became a Christian. That's one of the things he did. Before he was converted, he beat Christians. In Acts chapter 22, the Apostle Paul was relating his story to the Jews... And he relates this about how that he was having a conversation with the risen Christ, and he was praying to God, and he said, Lord, they know that I am and beat in every synagogue them that believed on thee. So Paul beat them when he was a Pharisee. But then God converted him. I mean, he got, he got changed. His heart was changed. And then what the Jews did, they did the same thing to Paul that he did to Christians. They beat him because of his faith. So the religious crowd would persecute the disciples, and they would, they would beat them in public in the synagogues. And, and the Word of God even says that, that they'll think they're doing God a favor when they do it. They'll beat you, and they think they're doing God a great favor for doing it. And so you read the history of that, and you find out that the Jewish leaders would actually read the Scriptures while they were beating Christians. So they'd have somebody there laying on the stripes, and they'd keep beating them. Somebody was there to count out the stripes to make sure they got the number right, And then they would read scriptures while they did it. Now, what they did, according to the Old Testament law, you couldn't beat somebody with more than 40 stripes. That was the limit. So these were really good, pious, religious people. They were good Jews, and they were going to make sure that they didn't break the law. So what they did, they stopped at 39. They made sure they didn't go to 40. That was the limit. So to make sure they kept it within the limits, they just went to 39. And they thought, man, we are such holy and righteous people. Look how well we keep God's law. And then, of course, you know the history of this in false Christianity. For centuries, uh, Roman Catholicism tortured true believers. They called them heretics. And they would stretch them out on racks. And they would pull their arms and their legs from their bodies. And they would burn them at the stake. All kinds of inventive tortures that they used on Christians. And they maimed them and they killed them. Well, let me just tell you how much they, they hated true believers. John Wycliffe gave us the first English translation of the Bible. Now, I'm not talking about English like we speak today because John Wycliffe lived before the era of, of the English like we have today. But he was the first to translate the Bible into Middle English. And the Roman Catholic Church hated him for standing up to the Pope and defying the order that he was not to translate the Scriptures into a language that the people could actually read. I mean, the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church didn't want people reading the Bible, so they were angry with John Wycliffe because he did that. But, you know, John Wycliffe kind of of avoided them all the time, and, and they weren't able to kill him. He died before they had a chance to kill him. So they did the next best thing. They declared him a heretic, and they dug up his bones and burned them. That's why they, I mean, that's how much they really hated true Christianity. Now, that type of persecution is going to be carried out as long as there are believers in the world. And this is going to stretch all the way into the tribulation. And that's why you find there in verse number 23 that this is going to happen till the Son of Man becomes. He says, you're not going to go over the, all the cities of Israel uh, before uh, the Son of Man comes. So he's talking there, extending it all the way out into the tribulation period. And what happens then? Well, we've studied that in our Revelation series. The Antichrist is going to be here. Yeah, there'll be a worldwide religion in which he makes himself God, and he kills true Christians. And he doesn't stop until he stamped out the whole bunch of them. So Jesus talks about synagogues and what he's doing there. He's just setting up the whole religious context of this. It's not just going to be the Jews that'll persecute. In fact, the Jews stop persecuting Christians. After A little bit after A.D. 70, when the temple was destroyed and Jerusalem was destroyed, the Jews uh, really stopped persecuting Christians to any great degree, probably by about the end of the first century. But oddly enough, those who claim Christianity have become some of the worst persecutors for the past 2,000 years. So religion, Jesus says, will persecute. Then secondly, he says that rulers will persecute. Verse number 18, and ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. Let me tell you here the significant difference between uh, verses 17 and 18 in the immediate context for the disciples. They would be scourged in the Jewish synagogues, but the Jews were under Roman rule, and so they couldn't do anything but scourge, they couldn't carry out an execution. That's why Jesus was brought before Pilate, and it was the Romans that crucified him. The Jews would have done it, but they weren't allowed to execute anybody. But that's not true with governors and kings. And there were a lot of these in the Roman Empire. There were rulers. I mean, there were governors over uh, all sorts of provinces and kings over different territories. And when Christians were brought before those governors and those kings, often it meant a death sentence. Now, you see, the Romans considered Christians to be enemies of the state. And that's because the Roman emperor had God status. And he demanded that he be worshipped as God. And so Christians were commanded, you have to say that Caesar is Lord. But Christians would never say that. They would always say, Kyrios Christos, or Jesus Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. And so the Romans then had the opinion that Christians were subversive to the government. And then there were doctrines that Paul taught that were troublesome to the Romans. For instance, this in Galatians 3.28, when Paul said, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. That doctrine was terribly upsetting to the Romans. They, they, They didn't believe that slaves were human. Paul said, There's neither bond nor free. But they didn't believe slaves were even human. They were chattel. They were possessions like an old couch or or, or a chair. They were like a farm implement that when you wear it out, all you do is just throw it out on the garbage heap. But Paul taught that there is equality among all people in Jesus Christ. And so the Romans thought, well, with teaching like that, there's going to be a slave revolt. And the Romans were ill-equipped to handle an empire-wide revolt of millions of slaves. Half the population was in slavery. So they said, we'd better get rid of the Christians. And if we don't, we're going to have a huge mess on our hands. Now, many slaves became Christians, and so you see the lurking problem there. But the trouble is that the Romans missed the rest of Paul's teachings. Now, a Christian slave, according to Paul, is a better slave. Now, although Paul didn't advocate slavery, he did teach this in Ephesians Uh, chapter 6 he said servants be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and singleness of your heart as unto christ not with eye service as men pleasers but as servants of christ doing the will of god from the heart with good will doing service as to the lord and not to men knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth the same shall he receive the lord whether he be bond or free now, there Paul is simply teaching that if you have to be a slave, and this is the society that you're living in, I mean, nobody's prepared for a slave revolt right then. He so said, this is the society that you live in, then you be the best slave that you can be. You be a good example for Christ, your master. Now, the Christian teaching, what Paul had to say about this, could not be understood by people who had, been spoke, had not been spoken to by the Holy Spirit. And Roman rulers didn't understand anything about Christ. They didn't really understand how this guy that they nailed to a cross, the one that they nailed there as a condemned criminal, they simply could not understand the kind of fanaticism that existed among Christians for Jesus Christ. It just didn't make sense to them. So the apostles would be brought before rulers, and they would testify against them. Now, that means that they would expose their wicked works. And when they did, it meant persecution and death. And if you want to see just a little bit of a preview of that, all you need to do is look at what happened to John the Baptist. When he confronted a ruler with the truth, you know what happened to him? He got his head cut off. He confronted the ruler, Herod Antipas, because of an adulterous and incestuous relationship that he had with Herodias, and they cut his head off for it. Now, thirdly, and we'll finish with this, and you you, you probably haven't experienced much persecution because of your religion. I mean, that doesn't happen too much in the United States, not a whole lot of it. Most likely, you have not experienced any persecution from rulers because we don't have that in our, in our country. You're not, you don't experience persecution from the government. But I know that many of you are familiar with a third source of persecution, and that is relatives will persecute. Verse number 21, "...and the brother shall deliver up the brother to death." and the father, the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. Now let's think again about the immediate context for what the apostles faced after the death of Christ. The Jews were looking for Christians. And the Romans, Gentile people, were looking for Christians as well. Whenever there was a person in a Jewish household that converted to Christ, it was just as if that person died died. I mean that person was dead to the family. It was a total disgrace in a Jewish family for a family member to convert to Christ. And the ties that they had to their false religion was so strong that family members would turn them into authorities if they if if they had converted. Now, it didn't matter how close the relationship was, whether it was a father, whether it was a child, whether your mother, your brother, it didn't make any difference. They would turn their own family members into the authorities to be put to death. Now, you think nobody really hates Jesus? You see, if you teach the Jesus of the Scripture and the God of the Scriptures, and you haven't got some idea of some fuzzy, long-haired, blue-eyed wimp with a flower behind his ear, people are going to hate you if you have a different Jesus. You know, something I love to talk about, the love of God. I mean, it's important that we do. The love of God is unfathomable. But what you have to do, you have to frame God's love in the context of what he saved us from. He sent Christ to save us from hell. He didn't send him to to, to save us from our bad luck and and not to save us from our sagging bank accounts and to make us rich and, and to help us in that way. He didn't come to give us a BMW instead of a Chevy. And no offense to you that oh, you, you, if you drive a Chevy, you've got enough sorrow to deal with already. But hell, hell, is, hell is where we're headed. Hell is where we're headed. And, and God sent Christ to deliver us from the wrath of God because of our sin. Now, if you look at verses 34 and 36, going way on down here to something we're going to get to later. He said, think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace but a sword. For I came to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foe shall be be what? They of his own household. And so there was real opposition from families. And when people are converted in times and places where this can be done, where people can be turned into the authorities for execution, it will be done. Now, you extend that out to more modern times. Here's what John Phillips wrote. He said, "...betrayals have been common in the persecution of Christians in the church age. For instance, in China, in the days of Mao, a nation of nearly a billion people was systematically brainwashed by a ruthless regime, and a diabolical attempt was made to stamp out Christianity through a policy of betrayal." In other words, they're getting people to turn on their own family members if they became Christians. And then, of course, we know it's come to light in recent years and since we have this ongoing war against terrorism that people in Muslim families that turn to Christ very often pay for that with their lives. And the same thing happens in those kinds of families. Those people that convert are dead to their families. And so if they're going to stand up for Christ and they want to live, they have to get out of there. They've got to get away from their families. They've got to get away from governments Their Islam is in control if they're able even to get away. But we need to really personalize it just a little bit more because, again, people really don't get put to death in our country for converting to Christianity. But some of you here, some of you that have Hispanic backgrounds, you know what it means to convert to Jesus Christ, the true gospel of Christ from Catholicism, when you convert to justification in Jesus Christ alone, belief in him alone for your salvation, you're headed for trouble. If you reject Catholicism and the mass and veneration of Mary and the authority of the Pope and the Roman Church, then you are going to get kicked out of your family. Some of you have experienced that. You're not welcome. You're persona non grata with your own family. And that's what Jesus said. He came to divide families. A man's foe shall be they of his own household. Why does that happen? Well, it happens because of an evil heart of unbelief that shows up in hatred of God. If you take a moment to read what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, he speaks there of how dull people are against the truth. And he gives a real long list there of what evil men do. And in the list is this statement. He says in Romans one thirty-one, Without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection implacable, unmerciful, without natural affection. Now, Matthew Poole says about this, This evil also reigned amongst the Gentiles who sacrificed their children to their idols and otherwise exposed them to ruin. And so when a heart is against God, that hatred of God is stronger than human love can bind us to our own families. And so the love of a false religion can actually turn into a murderous religion. And so here you have then the warning of Jesus to the apostles. There's no point in lying to them about it. There's no point in telling them that it's going to be anything different than what Jesus says here. So he's not going to lie about what their faith brings. He's not going to water down what commitment to Christ really means. Because those that are unwilling to commit to this are not going to be there in the end anyway. And this is what he says. Those that endure to the end shall be saved. And, that's, and I'll, I'll explain that verse in the next lesson. And we'll get to that and talk about it a little bit more. But, but he, he's simply saying that, that people that will not commit to what he said here are not going to be there in the end. So why sugarcoat this? I mean, I mean, why make it less than what it really is? Christ is everything. And saving your soul and the lives of others is everything. And he's telling us it's worth it all to do that. It's worth it to do this. So he says we're sheep among wolves, religious wolves, and and wolves that are rulers and even wolves that are among our relatives. There is hostility towards the harmless. Those of us who want to give the gospel, the saving gospel of Jesus Christ that really helps people escape hell, there is hostility towards us. But the important thing for us to remember in all of this is that Christ cares for the sheep. His compassion is there. His protection is there. And he sends out with a promise. I am never going to leave you or forsake you. Psalm is said in Psalm 2710, When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. Now, contrary to what the Marine Corps says, Christ is looking for a few bad men. And that's because there aren't any good ones. They will become good, They'll become good towards God. They hated God, but then they're going to learn, we love him because he first loved us. And when does that happen? Well, it happens when Christ comes into their heart by faith. It happens when they realize that they are lost and they are condemned to hell without Christ. They were once hostile, and we were once hostile to God. We were once hostile even to the harmless, the ones that brought us the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the thing about it is God overcomes the hostility, and that's why we're saved. You know, I got sp- talking about this morning. Here, here's the thing. You're not doing anybody a favor when you don't preach to people about hell. When you, when you just hide hell from people and you don't talk about that, you haven't done anybody a favor. What you've done is you have condemned them. They need to know what to be saved from. And if they're going to receive Christ, truly, they have to know what they're being saved from. And they're being saved from hell when they trust him. So if you are a witness for Christ, you will experience persecution. But God will save some. Some will believe. And it's worth everything that you can do to save souls from hell. And I hope that what you're willing to do is risk being a sheep among wolves. Because that's what Christ says you have to do in order to be his disciple. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you for this this lesson that we've learned tonight from your word. And Lord, help us to understand what true Christianity is all about. Help us not to try to water down the gospel to people, but tell them truly they need to repent of their sins and trust Christ because hell awaits and judgment is coming. Lord, even though uh, we will experience hostility... We know, Lord, that we have to have a singleness of purpose to exalt your name and let people know the truth, and you protect us. You protect our souls, and that's the most important thing that we possess. So, Lord, we just pray that you would help us, help us to be your people and to live, act, talk, dress, do everything that we can to honor and glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.